0: The two questions were different in their natures, but yet at the same token, they kind of covered the same ground in dealing with Aquila and Priscilla. And I want to go back and answer those two questions, and then uh, that's why it's 16, 3 through 5 on the the video. Uh, Verse 3 says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ Jesus, who have for my life laid down their own necks unto whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. So my goal is to answer the question. I'll tell you the question here in just a second. And then answer that, kind of give a give a historical setting for it, and then look at uh, the issue of the church in their house just real quickly and, and so forth. Because that is out there. We don't get... Th- <laughs> It hasn't been thrown at me in, a, in quite a long time, because the guy that did, it, the guy that was yelling at me, uh, he ended up being a Calvinist, a Universalist, and all this stuff. I tell him, work on your other doctrine before telling me that we shouldn't be working, be, be meeting publicly in a building, you know. So <laughs> I laughed too. I was like, "Yeah, okay," <laughs> you know, if you're gonna. But anyway, um, so the the question that came up and um, I just make sure that clarity, I guess, okay, about Aquila and Priscilla is that uh, the question about Aquila and Priscilla is, were they members of the little flock, of the believing remnant, and, and then as Paul comes on, then they go and do, or are they members of the body of Christ? Now, that's two questions kind of put together, and I, the Scripture doesn't say a yay or a nay, but the historical setting of it indicates probably that they were not members of the little flock, and so therefore they became members of the body of Christ. If you look back with me in Romans 9, and again, we've already looked at some of this in our thinking in our study of Romans okay so you have again doctrines revealed is one thing doctrines learned is something else and so we're gonna be a little more technical this morning and then we'll move on into the in, in next week if you look at Romans 9 verse 6 not as though the word of God had taken none effect for they are not all Israel which are of Israel So we've already learned in Romans 9, 10, and 11 that just because they carry the Jew title doesn't mean they were a member of the little flock. Circumcision, believers, okay? So that ought to answer all the questions and be done with it, but it isn't, and I I understand that because then there's the... I I love the what-ifs because the what-ifs are not in Scripture. I've never seen a what-if in Scripture, I've seen a, if it's this, then it's that, but not a, well, what if this happened? No, it's pretty black and white, okay? The other thing is, is in Romans 15, we read about Paul taking up the collection for the poor saints at Jerusalem. So, obviously, by Acts 15, Galatians 2, there are some saints back in Jerusalem. He's taken up a collection but not all of them are back in there. So you have that. So he knows, Paul never, in our study in Romans 9, 10, and 11, I tried to stress with you, Paul does not go to the little flock. He never addresses them because of the agreement of Acts 15, Galatians 2. Okay? So, he will, he, so when, as his manner is going into the synagogue, the little flock is not in the synagogue. They're not in the temple. And the reason is, is what the Lord did to it in his earthly ministry. Okay? When the Lord declares that my house of prayer is now your house and it's desolate, the, believer it, the believer's not going to go there any longer. And we're going to see it here in just a minute. So then the believing remnant would not go into that. Okay? Also, in Galatians 2, Paul, Peter, and them, they get the right hands of fellowship, and Paul says, I'm going to who? I'm going to the heathen. That's all unbelievers, Jew and Gentile. See, you're in Romans, uh, flip over to Galatians. I just quoted it to you. Galatians 3. Great verse here, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. See, what's the issue today? In Christ, all right? There's neither bond nor free. free. There's neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. So in the age of grace, God's not in the real estate business in the age of grace. He's not in the kingdom building business. He's, he's doing something. He's in the bodybuilding. <laughs> Planet Fitness, here I come, right? He's in the bodybuilding. So when you come into this, now come back to Acts 8. I just want you to see as we go through this, and you have to, this is some of the stuff that's in the file cabinet in the back of my brain as we're, as I'm teaching you. And sometimes I Uh, maybe wrongfully or wishfully or needfully, assume that you're thinking the same, you've got the same information, and I know we all don't, but if you look historically at where we're at, look at Acts 8, and just look at verse 1, just kind of refresh our thinking here, because every time you read Jew, you can't automatically think little flock, circumcision believer, little believing remnant. Because they come out of Israel a mixed multitude, don't they? Yeah. Believing and unbelieving. So then what do we have? So we have a condition in Israel that has to be recognized. Look at 8.1. And Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time there was great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except... The apostles and devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentations over him. And for Saul, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every what? Isn't that interesting? Not temple, not synagogue, but what? House. Why? Because look at chapter nine. Look at chapter nine, verse two. Verse 1, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter went against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired, him, desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way. Isn't that interesting? What way? The way, the truth, and the life. The, the folks following Jesus Christ. Whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound into Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly, the, and, and, and off we go. And Saul of Tarsus becomes Paul the Apostle. But if you go back to 8 1, first of all, who's left? We didn't finish reading, verse 3. As he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. You see, Israel is now scat- the believing remnant scattered. Who's in, Israel? Who's in Jerusalem? Apostate Israel is. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, the elders, the guys who are out there trying to kill the believing remnant. What well, I want you to catch in Acts 8, 1, well, in verse 1 there, there's nobody in Judea except who, the apostles. That means in the historically right here, because of Acts seven. Again, look in Acts seven. Acts seven, in verse fifty, you have Stephen, and he's before the council. He is, hath not my hand made all these things. Ye stiff-necked and what? But uncircumcised where. In heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost, as your fathers did, so do ye. So when he declares them uncircumcised in heart, he just declared them heathen. He's not talking to Gentiles. He's talking, verse Seven, 7, 7, 1, then said the high priest, Are these things so? 6.12. And they stirred up the people and the elders and scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council. He's not, he's standing in front of the leadership of Israel, and what did he just declare Israel to be? Heathen, uncircumcised in heart and ear. And again, you go to Genesis 17. Verse 12 and 13, and if you're not circumcised, you are cut off. They're uncircumcised. Now, we're in Acts 8, okay? All right, that's where we're at. So the setting in Acts where Agrippa and all this is going on and where Paul is going to come over to chapter 17. Chapter 17. Um. Chapter 17, just verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis uh, Am- and Apollonia, they, they came to Thessalonica, where a synagogue of the Jews. And it's interesting. You go through script through the through the Gospels, and it's not the Lord's Passover; it's the Jews' Passover. See, they've corrupted it. It's fascinating. Because the Passover was always the Lord's Passover. Here it's the synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, again, as his manner was, went in unto them. Who? The unbelieving element in Israel. The Jews. His kinsmen. That's why in Romans 9, 10, and 11, I told you Paul's heart's desire was for Israel to get saved. Why? Because he understood that he was helping promote unbelief in his own nation. He was the pusher of it in Acts 8. He's out there trying to kill chapter 9, verse 1, there, that of this way, the way. He knows that he was the leader of the rebellion against God's word and and people. And that was heartbreaking to him. That's why, hey, look at what God's doing now. Let's get on board. So in chapter 17, well, by the way, keep reading. What did he do? As his manner was. That means he always did this. This was his goal. Why? Uh, Romans eleven eleven. Have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid, but through their fall, salvation has come unto the Gentiles. Why? To provoke them to jealousy. Why does he go to the Jew first? They've got the Old Testament. They know the book. Look at it. He reasoned with them. Uh, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead and that this Jesus whom I preached unto you is Christ. And some of them, again, who would the them be? Those in the synagogue, which would be unbelieving Israel, heathen, uncircumcised in hearts. At what would they do? They believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks, a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. <laughs> he went in there preaching, Christ died for your... He takes the Old Testament and proves that Jesus Christ was Jehovah. Okay? Then he turns around and says, That man, look look back in chapter 13. Chapter 13. By the way, this is why you have a chapter 13 in your book of Acts. is So you see what Paul's preaching in the synagogue. What's he do? Acts 13, he gives... It starts in verse 14. He gives the history of Israel. Verse 36. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. But he, whom God raised again, saw what? No corruption? Well, who is that? There's the Lord Jesus Christ. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man, the Lord Jesus Christ, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things from which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. Is that a little... He's preaching that in the synagogue. See, that's how you know what he's doing. Nobody before Paul ever preached verse 38 in the synagogue. The Lord Jesus Christ didn't even preach that. You know what they preach? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You guys got to get right, because kingdom's coming. Now come over to Acts 18. So who's in the synagogue? Unbelieving Jews. Now you, uh, Acts 15. You have the meeting between Paul and Peter, Titus, and so forth. Acts 17, they're out and about. 16, they're out. Acts 18, after these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth and found a certain Jew named Aquila. Well, where are we? We're not in Jerusalem, are we? Where are we? We're in Corinth. See, what's in Corinth? A synagogue of the Jews. Who's there? Believing remnant or little flock? I mean, or unbelieving Jew? The unbelieving Jew is. The believing remnant, they're running for their lives. Why? Because that Saul of Tarsus is getting us. Now he's converted, so we're kind of hanging out here watching to make sure this is the real deal. Acts 9, he says that the church found rest. Okay, you guys following? Okay. So the believing remnant will not be in the synagogue. Now, what you may. okay, Rick, wait a minute. We're in Acts 18. Well, What was said in Acts 15? Do you remember? They perceived, Galatians 2, Paul gives the behind the account. They perceived the grace that was given unto me. They gave to me the right hand of fellowship that they would go where? To the who? I'm going to the heathen. They're going to who? Circumcision. That's believing remnant. Did I confuse you? I'm trying not to. Okay, I'm trying to go a little slower. So a believing remnant member, if Aquila and Priscilla were part of the little flock, you know where they would not have been? In the synagogue. Because the agreement in Acts 15 prohibited them to be there. They would have been where? They would have been at home trying to take care of other folks, yet they're not. They're up at the synagogue. By the way, you see in verse 24 and 25, they get Apollos. Apollos is not a member of the of the little flock. He's down there preaching up to, about the baptism of John. He's not up to date. Aquila and Priscilla bring him up to date. Do so you follow what's happening here? There's the, the historical setting of it, of what's happening. By the way, if you just keep reading in Acts 18, there were tent makers, verse 4, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews... And the Greeks. And when, think about that, the Jews were being in the synagogue, the Greeks are going to be on the outside, and who are they listening to? This crazy man named Paul, Saul Paul. See that? So that means he had a booming voice to be able to hit them all. Uh, Verse 5 And when Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the spirit and testified to who? To the Jews. Which Jew? The little flock or unbeliever? Unbeliever. Has to be. Because Acts 15 said the little flock, the believing remnant, we're going to stay home and get ready for when God's done visiting the Gentiles, Peter says, James affirms. So we have to get ready here. Verse 6, And when they were opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said unto them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From henceforth, I will go unto the Gentiles. What did he just say to unbelieving Israel? You doomed yourself. You did this to yourself. And I'm out of here. He departed thence and entered into a certain man's house named Justice, and and, uh, one that worshiped God, whose house joined hard to the synagogue. Uh Uh-oh. And Crispus, The chief ruler of the synagogue believed on the Lord with all his house, and many of the Corinthians were hearing believed and were baptized. Oh, see, look, Rick, they're baptizing. But why were they baptized? Not for justification. They believed the Lord. Well, who's sitting right next door? The synagogue. And now a bunch of Gentiles are getting baptized, and what's that to do? Provoke them to jealousy. What am I do? What are you doing my baptism for? <laughs> so when Crispus saw that, what did he do? Hey, what you doing over there? And Paul said, "Glad you asked. Let me tell you about a wonderful Lord and Savior. And oh, by the way, you know him as Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> you know, and he can expound it to him." Uh, Verse 9, then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision. Be not afraid, but speak and hold not thy peace. But I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee, and off they go. Okay? My point is, is historically, when Agrippa and Priscilla show up, they're not showing up as believing remnant members, it appears. They're showing up as, Paul was a Pharisee. Pharisees are fundamental Bible believers. They believe the word of God. They just didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. But they believe the book. They believe that word, that it was right, it was boom, boom. That's why he would look at Nicodemus and say, you're a master and you don't know anything about the born again, the new covenant stuff, and you're a master in Israel, John 3. He should have known. He's a Pharisee. Aquila and Priscilla were that. They understood the Old Testament. They believed it. That's why they're in the synagogue. Where do, who told them to go to the synagogue? Moses did. Who told why? I know that. Boom. That's why Paul goes into the Jew first. Why? They've got the book that he's going to use to reason with them to demonstrate that Christ was Jehovah. And you killed him. And but now look at what he's doing. But now look at what he's doing. Now, the apostate nation, come back with me to Mark 11. Because, um, by the way, in Romans 16, you remember verse 7 where he lists those guys and he says, in Christ before me? He doesn't say that about Aquila and Priscilla. It's interesting. He only says it about those guys listed right there in that verse. Well, how would they be in Christ before me? They're members of the little flock who evidently heard Paul, understood what God was doing, and said, let's go help him. Fellow prisoners, I mean, they're out doing because of what? Well, Acts 15, what Peter say? We're going here. Finish it up. Get ready. Paul's got the heathen covered. He's got unbelieving Israel covered, and he's got the Gentiles covered. And we're going to stay right here. So if you went to Peter... In the Acts period, after 9, he would say, go talk to Paul. Why? Because the right hand of fellowship, whatever you bind, I'll be bound. Whatever you loose is loose. He gives a binding agreement that what are they going to do? Go to the circumcision. And who's Paul going to? The heathen. Unbelieving Jew. Unbelieving Gentile. Say, follow that? very clear or muddied water clear okay (laughs) you have to work through that you got to pay attention and what helps is the earthly ministry of the lord jesus christ because when you come into the book of acts the acts 1 to 7 1 to 8 nothing has changed from the earthly ministry days of the lord jesus christ look at mark 11 Historically, the nation of Israel has always been a mixed multitude. Um, by the way, I just show you that. Come back to Numbers 11. I know I told you. All right, we'll get there. Numbers 11. Numbers 11. You can do this in Exodus 12, but Numbers 11 is a little more, uh, a little more descriptive. Numbers 11, verse 4. Numbers 11, 4. And the mixed multitude that was among them fell a lusting. And the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? We remember the fish which we did in Egypt freely, did eat in Egypt freely, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our soul is dried away. There is nothing at all besides this manna before our eyes. And the manna was a coriander seed, and the color thereof is the color of... And they're just a bunch of moaners, aren't they? Just a one. But who's doing it? The mixed element. See that? Exodus 12, he said, when you came out, you came out as a mixed multitude. The unbelieving element is the one moaning about having to eat manna. The believing element, what are they saying? Thank you, Lord, for the manna. Praise the Lord. Thank you, thank you, thank you. See, so historically, so when you come to Mark 11, when you come to the earthly ministry of Christ, what is the condition in Israel? Well, we've got an apostate nation now. They bought into Baal worship, Ahab, Jezebel. They bought into all of the, the idolatry worship, Solomon introduced them to, and and Ahab did, and all the kings of Israel did. They've got this; they have no idea about what true worship is. So much so that Isaiah, he says out there in this day, that God's or actually it's going to end up being in the the tribulation, second coming, the time frame, future of us. He says, "I don't want your, I don't want those stinking sacrifices. I wanted your heart all along," and he never had it. You come to the Lord Jesus Christ, in Mark 11. We're just kind of jumping into the context here. So in the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the beginning of his ministry, he cleans out the temple. Okay? Now here at the end of his ministry, he cleans it out again. Are you with me? Okay? So look, if you will, here at, if you come to, Hold on to Mark 11. Look just real quick to John 2. John 2, 13. John 2, 13. This is the beginning of his earthly ministry. John 2, 13. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables and said unto them that sold doves, Take these hence and make not my father's house a house of merchandise. Now you see how that verse ends with a period. Then his disciples say, and I remember that it was written, Psalm 69, the zeal of the house hath eaten me up, and answered Jesus, and and, off, and they go do something else, okay? Now go to Mark 11, because we're at the end of his, we're right before Calvary. We're the week of. We're a couple days out. We're on the way to the cross. And he's going to do it again, verse 11. And Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple. So he just came he just had the triumphal entry, we, they call it. He's just come into Jerusalem on, on, the, on the back end of the baby donkey, and again, fulfilling that he is Jehovah, he's their Messiah, the paint in the picture, and Israel is in total rejection. The only ones that are there that receive him are the believing remnant. Verse 11, where does he go? The end of verse, or well, verse 10, Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple. And when he looked round about upon all things, and now the tide was come, he went out unto Bethany with the twelve. So the Lord comes in, he comes into the temple. Now the temple is the heartbeat of the nation. So you have a picture here of the Lord coming in and looking at the heart of the nation. He looks around. He doesn't do anything at this moment. He just looks around. He doesn't say anything. He's looking at the heart of the nation. He's looking to see. And by the way, what he sees is down there in verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And he taught, saying unto them, It is not Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. That's what he sees. That's the spiritual condition in the nation of Israel. It's what? A den of thieves. They've corrupted it. They've corrupted all of it. But he doesn't do anything here. He doesn't say anything. He just looks around. Then he leaves, goes out Bethany. Verse 12, and on the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. We were talking yesterday about the Lord, the Godhead being hungry. Well, here he was hungry. By the way, you know how the Lord, do you know how the Godhead experienced hunger? It was through the Lord Jesus Christ bodily. That's how they experienced it. They, can you imagine never being hungry? I would love that. <laughs> would save a few pounds, <laughs> you know. Anyway, and no comment. Verse 13, And seeing a fig tree afar off, having leaves. Now, if you see a fig tree afar off and it's got leaves on, what do you think is on there? Fruit. You would think fruit's there. So where are we going? We're going to get the fruit. We're hungry. He came, if happily he might find, happily, perchance by, you know, hopefully, He might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For the time of the fig was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, talking to the fig tree, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And And his disciples heard it. What did he just do? He curses the fig tree. Okay? Now, if you read Larkin and Schofield and the boys, you quickly have a problem because they all identify the fig tree as representing the nation, the national life of Israel. There's four trees in your Bible. Go back to Judges 9. Again, folks, you have to have all this in your head, in in that filing cabinet in the back, (laughs) because when you read this stuff, the tendency is to go, okay, you know, knee-jerk back, and yet it sits right here. He sees the fig tree. You got Judges 9? All right. Slip something in Judges 9. Come back to Mark 11. Let's set the stage just a little better, okay? Because there's a picture here that the Lord is drawing for his apostles. Okay? Okay? Verse 14, he curses it. By the way, the only miracle that the Lord ever did of destruction or judgment is right there. All his other miracles are positive and for the good. This is the only negative one is right here. He saw the potential in the fig tree. It had leaves on. But when he got there, what? No fruit. Fear not, little flock, it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, a nation... I'm going to give you, I'm going to bring forth a nation bringing forth the fruit of the kingdom. Okay. Now, verse 15 they come to Jerusalem, and how do they find the temple? Well, you've made my house a den of thieves, haven't you? See that? We just read that. Verse 19. And when even was come, Mark eleven nineteen, 19, he went out of the city. And in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. Notice the curse was immediate. It did not drag on for months, years, and days. It's immediate. That's why identifying the fig tree is going to be so critical here verse 21 and Peter calling to remembrance, saying unto master behold the fig tree which thou curseth is withered away okay no get the picture the Lord comes down off the mountain it's time to go to Calvary it's the week before now come to judges 9 he comes into town he goes into that temple He he just I mean just now getting the donkey off his you know off of his clothes goes in looks at the heart of the nation sees it in total apostasy, sees it in total corruption. Then he comes out, goes, goes out to Bethany. I, I always think of the Lord as a camper, a tent camper. He goes outside the city and he tents and puts his tent up and camps out. Gets up the next morning, they're hungry, he's on his way in, sees this fig tree. And Matthew says it's on the road, Mark says it's by the road, it's there. And so it's in their way, it's on their way. He gets up there, there's no fruit, and he curses it. Then he goes into town, empties out the temple. Okay? Peter, the next morning they get up. Peter says, Hey, that tree you cursed yesterday, it's dead. Instantly done. So then now we have to identify, now the issue of identifying the fig tree is so critical. Because if you go with Larkin and Schofield and the boys, and you say the fig tree is the nation of Israel, the national life of Israel, which is what they say, then what did he do? He cursed the nation. And that's his people. He doesn't do that. See, So the fig tree has to be something else. So, Judges 9, you have the four trees. Uh, Just for sake of time, verse verse 8, the trees went forth on a time to anoint a king over them. So in your scripture, trees, when it's not clearly that it's a a bush with with, leg, with leaves and figs, and, or with uh, limbs and all, twigs, then it usually trees in, in the prophetic scripture are talking about people, nations. Just like mountains are talking about nations usually. Like in Revelation, the seven mountains. That's not geographical location, that's seven nations. And anyway, I told you for time's sake, right? Verse 9, uh, verse 8. Over them, And they said unto the olive tree, so here's number one, olive tree, reign thou over us. So the Gentile nations are coming to Israel and saying, reign over us. But they go to the olive tree first. But the olive tree said unto them, should I leave my fatness wherewith by me they honor God and man and go to be promoted over the trees? And the tree said to the fig tree, Come thou and reign over us. But the fig tree said unto them, Should I forsake my sweetness and my good fruit and go to be promoted over the trees? Then said the trees unto the vine, Come thou and reign over us. And the vine said unto them, Should I leave my wine, which cheereth God and man, and go to be promoted over the trees? Then they said all, then said all the trees under the bramble, Come thou and reign over us. And the bramble said under the trees, If in truth ye anoint me king over it, then come and put your trust in my shadow. And if not, let the fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. So you got the four trees. The olive, the fig, the vine, and the bramble. By the way, bramble, apostate Israel. Apostasy. Bramble's no good. There was no The bramble... By the way, all four trees are in the Garden of Eden. The bramble shows up at, in Genesis 3 after the curse. We have apostasy. The olive tree. Think about this quickly. The olive tree. The fatness. This is talking. This is representing Israel. Uh, the the right to access God. In Solomon's temple, the doorway into the temple was made out of olive wood. Olive the holy spirit that's a olive oil is the oil used so it's always so the olive tree is always talking about accessing god okay the vine tree that that's talking about the national life of israel come over with me hold on to the judges come to isaiah chapter 5 <clears throat> isaiah chapter 5 Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1. <clears throat> I know I skipped fig. We're going to come back to the fig, okay? Again, the bramble, that's apostate. That, By the way, the bramble tree is who they are in the Lord's day, okay? That's who they are actually from the judges on, <laughs> quite honestly, because they just are in total apostasy. Isaiah 5, verse 1. Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard and a very fruitful hill. He fenced it, gathered out the stones thereof, and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it. By the way, tower, tower of Babel, tower in Israel is where is 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 where you find the word of the Lord. You find the power of the Lord is there in the tower. It's, a, it's where they're going to, deal with uh, and so forth and has made a wine press therein and he looked and it should be brung and it should bring forth grapes and it brought forth wild grapesn't is that interesting look at verse 7 for the vineyard of the Lord of host is the house of Israel and the men of Judah his plans are... see that who the vineyard of the Lord is who the house of the nation of Israel the nation of Judah Come back with me to Psalms, chapter 80. So the vineyard, the vine tree, Psalms 80, the vine represents the national life of Israel. Psalms 80, you can go verse 7 to 10, but verse 8, thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt. Who came out of Egypt? The nation of Israel did. Israel was born. My firstborn, boom, there they are. So the vine tree, olive, access to God, vine tree, national life of Israel. John 15, verse 1, Jesus Christ says, I am the true vine. What is he? He's the true nation. If you're going to be in the true nation, where are you going to be? In Christ. You got to get in. How do you get in him in Israel? Well, you come in through the door of water baptism, of John's baptism. You're acknowledging him. Get out of that untoward generation. Jump in here, guys. Let's go. They got processes to do. The fig tree. You remember, uh, come to James 1. Just let judges go, just because of the clock back there. James 1. Do you remember the first time you see the fig tree in Genesis? Adam and Eve? They sin. They go down there and do operation fig leaf. They pick the scratchiest bush in the whole place. And what do they do? They try to cover up their nakedness. The, so the olive tree, here's the spiritual access to God for the through the nation of Israel. The fig tree, here's the, the religious life of Israel is in the fig tree. okay? What did Adam and Eve do? They tried to cover up. They tried to help God fix their problem. What does religion do? Just that. If you do this, then you'll be accepted of God. So we're going to cover it up. So the fig tree represents Israel's religious life. God only gave one religion. He gave it to Israel through Moses. James 1 verse 27, he calls it pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows and their afflictions and to keep him unspotted from the world. Do you know that if you preach that today as a means of justification, you're sending people to hell? I, if you preach Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as a way of justification, you are sending people to hell. Because that's not the gospel message today. But what is pure religion? See that Pure religion? It's what God gave it to Israel. Do you know why they're visiting the fatherless and the widows and to keep him unspotted? You know what all that's a reference to? What's happening in the 70th week of Daniel down there in the book of the Revelation. Why are they fatherless? Because Daddy stood for the truth and the Antichrist and the system of the world took his head. You know who that is? That's apostate Israel. See? That's the guy's in the synagogue in Acts 8. That everybody's, oh, it's in the synagogue. No, no good's in the synagogue. Come back to Mark 11. That's why in Mark 11, what does the Lord say about the synagogue in verse 17? My house should be a house of prayer for who? For all nations. You know what, Israel, if you had the pure religion and you were keeping it and you were walking and doing what I'm saying, then all the nations would come to you and that Gentile salvation issue of the Old Testament would have been fulfilled. But you know what you've done? You took my house, my temple, my sanctuary, and you made it into a den of thieves. See see what he did? Why? So identifying the fig tree, by the way, we... (laughs) The fig tree has to do with the national, li- the religious life of Israel. What did he just do to it there in verse 14? He cursed it. So the old covenant, the Mosaic law is what? Peter said, verse 21, it's withered away. Why? Because the new covenant, the testator of the new is about to go die on the cross. Okay, I see some hmm. The testator, the death of the testator brings in the what? The new, the old covenant. Remember Hebrews, that old is vanishing away, it's decaying away. Yeah, he just cursed it. Now what's coming? I'm going to Calvary. And when I die and I'm resurrected, Hebrew, he's now the new covenant. You don't need the old anymore. We go to the new. What, by the way, what are they, who are they reading daily in the synagogue? The old, Moses. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 3. They read Moses every day, and it's a veil over their heart. They're blinded. What is he doing here? By the way. Just so you don't know I'm nuts, look over at Mark 13. Well, you might think I'm nuts, and that's okay. But see, folks, so people always ask me, how can you say that? This is why I say some of this, because this is in the back of my mind from thinking this stuff from studying. Mark 13, look at verse 28. Because this happened. "Now Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When her branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, ye know that summer is near. So ye in like manner, when ye shall see these things come to pass, know that it is nigh even at the door. Verily I say unto you, you see that thing there? The budding of the fig tree happens. Wait a minute. The fig tree he cursed. What did he curse? That good old time religion. Well, what's coming in the future a new religion called the messianic covenant called the new covenant what was the old covenant it was an if then wasn't it if you perform then you know what the new is I write it in your hearts and you're gonna do it performance based grace based by the way we don't have the new covenant we're not preachers of the new covenant okay you see, folks, if you say that the fig is the national life, then in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and in John, you have the Lord cursing the, na- the very nation he's trying to rescue. Especially in early Acts. Because where is Peter in Acts 2? Ye men of Jerusalem. Why are they in Jerusalem? For the Passover, for Pentecost. Acts two one. He's not talking to ragtag muffins out there. He's talking to the all the known world, all the Jews of the known world are there, and he says, boom, you guys, you guys killed him. You murdered him with wicked hands. He, see, he's trying to ra- get out of that untoward generation later in chapter 2. What's he doing? He's ra- trying to, he's got an audience, doesn't he? <laughs> Mark 13, you know what he says? There's a new coming, and it's a new covenant. Now, go back to 11, 15, and just so you, I want you to catch something here in all of this. He goes into the temple, throws out the corruption, the overthrow, of the cha- the money changers, this, throws out the corruption. Now, watch verse 16. And would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel Notice that, through the temple. You know what he just did? He just stopped the hypocrisy of temple worship. Because what were the chief priests, what were those workers in the temple doing? They were carrying stuff through. And when he says any vessel, you go back and read what the priesthood was doing, and what a, they're carrying the table of show, they're carrying the show bread over. Nope, stopped. Don't you do that. See what he just did there? He not now, verse 16 is not in John 2, where we started. In his earthly ministry, he just kicks out the corruption, hoping to rectify the temple worship part. But at the end, there's no saving it. So he chops it down, cuts it off, uh, curses it. And then Mark adds in that little sentence there about, he even stopped temple. Could you imagine what the chief, why the chief priest and the elders hated him so much? Not only does he violate their Sabbath day nonsense, but then he comes over here and he says he's God, and that really got him. But then he comes in and he stops the he shut the temple down in Jerusalem. Literally, shut the doors. They couldn't. Why? Because he just cursed it on the road out there and it's withered away. Again, the picture here. So the condition in Israel, verse 21, Peter calling to remembrance, saying unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursed is withered away. So when we come now to Acts 1 to 7, what's the condition in Israel? Total apostasy. Now, Are they up at the synagogue doing and the temple's doing? Yeah, because they're they're religious. But what has Christ done? He cursed it, shut it down. Who knows that? Believing remnant, the little flock. So the little flock would look at that and say, we ain't going there anymore. Why? Because our Savior, our Messiah, cursed it, shut her down. By the way, the rest of Mark up to Calvary, he trains them about the 70th week of Daniel, about the tribulation come, and he gets them ready for it. That's why that thing about this generation and so forth. But what he doesn't tell them about is the interruption with Paul. That's a secret, a mystery. Okay? So when you come to Acts, Acts 2, Pentecost, just those verses... I I mean, Peter, he's not being a Mr. Nice guy here. The day of Pentecost, verse 1, was fully come, and they were all with one accord in one place, and they get the the Holy Spirit there. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. began to speak with other tongues. The Spirit gave them utterance. Then he says there in verse 14, but Peter standing up with the... 11 lifted up his voice and said unto them you men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem be this known unto you and hearken to my words by the way there's no indication that Peter is in the temple when he says this he's out in the courtyard big courtyard around because they're housing all of the I mean all this population here verse 22 you men of Israel hear these words and it works because in verse 37, what do they say? What do we do? And Peter says, repent and believe that Christ died for your sins and was buried and rose again the third day. No. He says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remissions of sins, and ye shall receive gift. Verse 40, and with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, save yourselves from this untoward, generation. Think about that. What's the condition in Israel? Apostasy. That believing remnant, they know what's going on. And what's added, verse 41, 3,000 souls are added. By the way, that brings back the number that they lost in Exodus 32. 3,000 of them died with the snake bite, with the serpent. Now we got our three grand back. (laughs) And, And every time he adds more to it, adds more to it, You come over to uh, chapter 3. Chapter 3, you see Peter's first miracle. Okay? By the way, the first miracle of the Lord, the first miracle of Peter, the first miracle of of Paul are all dispensational miracles in nature. The Lord Jesus Christ, the first miracle he does, John 2, is turning the water to wine. What's he doing? Dispensationally, he is the one to bring in the kingdom blessing. Remember that marriage? They ran out of wine. Nobody. He makes wine. Now everybody's happy. Peter, first miracle. You're going to see him help a young man. And what that's going to picture is the restoration of Israel through the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Paul's first miracle over there is the issue of the blind Jew, blind Bartimaeus, and the Gentile seeing it. Dispensationally, what's happening? The Jews are blinded, and the Gentiles now can see. Okay? So you got all that. What does he do? He's, verse 6, and Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but as such as I have, I give thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. This poor man's outside the temple, can't get in. Peter walks, Peter's coming there. And what's he doing? He's restoring Israel. What's to be restored? That temple. The heart of the nation is to be restored, and Peter does it. So as you go through in Acts, when you read Jew, when Paul's ministry read Jew, do not automatically read Little Flock Believing Remnant. One, Paul never really talks to them, other than meeting with Peter. And by the way, when he meets with the Little Flock, it's always with Peter and the eldership, the leaders, <laughs> He never just goes over here and talks to, to Rick. <laughs> he's talked so you have to be very careful. So with Aquila and Priscilla, it's hard to say whether or not for sure they're believing remnant or not. I tend to lead that they're not, because they're in Corinth when they run into Paul. But Acts eighteen says he was a Jew. Well, yeah, he's a her- he's that's his heritage, that's who he is, that's how he was raised, that's what he would say he is. Remember. He got kicked out of Rome, but when they go back to Rome, he doesn't go back as a Jew. Well, how does he go back? As a member of the body, as a Christian. See, identity change. Okay, now, oh, we got four minutes, three minutes, and we're just let me say this about Romans 16 and verse 5. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. In the Apostle Paul, when you 16.5 is used by the church, house, church movement to say that in order to do church, air quotes, okay, you, have, you cannot meet in a building, you cannot own property, you have to meet in a house. I've even read some that you have to sit on the floor. You can't even sit in a chair. You can't have a cushion because they didn't have cushions back then. I'm like, are you sure? Every picture I see of Pharaoh, he's got a bunch of um, bud cushions all over him. You know, come on. They, you know they had a life living spaces somewhere, you know. <laughs> so Paul never mandates where. He just says, he tells the Corinthians, when you come together, when you gather together in one place, when you get together, when you are, 1 Corinthians 11, is full of it. When when you come together, you do. Where sits the church? It sits right here in you. It's it's in us, the people. When you guys leave this building, you know what this building is? Four walls and a roof. When you come into this building, you know what this building is? Four walls and a roof. But when you guys come in, the church has what? Come together in a a location. So to, to, to make the just a bold statement that, boom, this is what it is, to me is very dangerous. Um, you get one, give me, one, get, get Acts 20, because here's the other one, okay? And we can do this one, and then hopefully I've probably confused you enough with the stuff with Israel. Hopefully you understand that stuff about the Jew and the temple, because to me that's you have to have that in your mind when you're in these early days of Paul. Okay, you Look at Acts 20, verse 20. And how I, and that's Paul, kept nothing back that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house. So they use that and say, see, you got to be in a house, because that's where he taught. The problem is, is, what is the context of verse 20? Verse 17. And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. So who is the you in verse 20 the elders of the church at Ephesus and he's recalling how I kept back nothing from you that was profitable unto you but have showed you who elders of the church taught publicly and what house I went to the house of, of every elder. I went and had dinner. And I So the house has a context of the houses of the elders. And you do that, verse 18, And when they, the elders, came to, to him, he said unto them, Ye, the elders, the group. See, so you can't read, it's dangerous to read into a context something that obviously the context says what? He went to each elder's house and had a Bible study with them so they would understand it directly. Okay? So there's no command in Romans 16, 1 to 16, when he says the house, the church in their house, the church in their house, the brethren with them, the household. None of that is a command to do. It has to be this way. It's rather a a, a commendation of the service, of the faithfulness, of the work, of their willingness to put their necks on the line because where are they at? They're in Rome, and Rome is no friend to, to the Christian faith. Okay, just as today in our country, if all of a sudden the government became heavy-handed and said churches, houses of worship can't do, boom, 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 then what would we do? We would be in the house of somebody, in the house of, we would just go underground. At least I would hope we would. <laughs> I would, whether you're there or not, your deal, okay? But so, so that's the thing. So when you read that stuff on the church house stuff, it's interesting but it's not the norm and i'll be honest with you i don't want to live in the first century anyway um, because i like my pillows and my comforters (laughs) and my couches okay all right dearly father we thank you for the morning lord we thank you for your word we thank you for the ability to look into it to read it to study it to think through it to reason with you in it and to come to some understanding and some clarity in our understanding in your name we pray